Awesome. Hey, everybody. How are you guys? Great. <laughs> Me too. I'm doing good too. Thank you for asking. Um, happy Sunday. Here we are. It's a Sunday gathering. So if you weren't aware of that already, that's what's happening right now. And uh, yeah, welcome. You guys, thank you. Thank you uh, for having me out here. Yes, yesterday was a lot of fun, and uh, this is great. I, I'm <laughs> teaching the Bible is my idea of a good time, and uh, don't judge me for that. That's just the way the human I've become, and so there you go. Um, thank you. Also, you, you may not know this, but your, uh, your pastoral leaders here, when they in invited me to come out for this weekend, they made us a part of the invitation to bring our whole family, all four of us out here, um, so we, thank you, that was such a gift. Um, we, we uh, Jessica and I lived here, pre-kids, uh, for eight years, and uh, we just have so many formative friendships and relationships, and so we've just been hanging out with our dearest friends for the last few days, and now I get to be here and do this. Thank you, thank you so much. It's really a gift, a gift to be able to do that. Um, and it's also really, you know, you can, maybe some of you have this experience where you went somewhere, moved somewhere for a season that was really significant in your life. And then whenever you go back to that place, it just floods your memory with significant events and significant people. Um, and that's definitely what this, the last few days has been like. But in a way, I haven't experienced quite before. This is our first time coming back with our boys. Um, uh, Rome, I'm just going to be an indulgent parent and keep showing pictures of my kids because I can. I don't know why. So uh, uh, this is Roman, this is our older son. He's five, and then little August, he's three. And so, you know, this is their first time back here as, as boys. Roman was nine months old uh, when we moved uh, back to Portland from here five years ago. And... Um, and so we got to show him, like, the hospital he was born in, you know, and the house that he you know, lived in for the first nine months. And so it's, you know, really magical that way. Uh, but also, being back here in this place, but with kids, has been really this kind of jarring experience, too, because the eight years that we lived here, like, we, m most of those years, we didn't have children, which, which meant that most of the years and my memories here are from a time in life where Jessica and I had freedom. <laughs> like, and, you know, and like spare time and personal space, you know, these kinds of things uh, that we have no longer, right, for this, at least this season in our lives. And uh, whatever, we're parents with small kids. And some, some of you are in that season. Some of you, that season is in the past. Um, and for some of you, your memory of that is just being that kid in that season or whatever. But we all were, you know. And um, so, you know, these beautiful pictures, of course, they mask the reality of how our family actually behaves on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't have, of the thousands of pictures I have of the two boys, I don't have any of them smiling and looking at me, standing still, because that would be an impossible feat to accomplish, of course. Um, we are so grateful for these little humans in our lives. We affectionately uh, refer to them as uh, drunk cavemen, <laughs> which is, I mean, it's a fairly accurate description of their behavior, <laughs> right? So they're like really unpredictable and really volatile 
emotionally volatile, like the emotions are so intense, and from minute to minute, it's, you know, fierce anger and crushing disappointment and, you know, ecstatic glee and this kind of thing. And uh, they're just very, how they will treat our property or anyone else's property is always an unknown factor. And, uh, you know, it's really whatever. And we're grateful for it and, and challenged by it. But it's weird. It's weird to be back here in this place in such a different season. It's so clear to me uh, that we're in a totally different season of life and that what we experience here is no more. And won't, our lives ever, won't ever be like that again. And it's just been a really interesting experience. And it, it makes me also reflect on when we lived here, I was in grad school and we moved here to do the Hebrew Bible program at UW-Madison and Dead Sea Scrolls and all of that. Uh, my brain was filled with that and that's what I focused on for many years here. And in contrast, like now I'm here, all I, can, all I can fit in my brain these days is the Bible project and teaching and parenting these cavemen, right? <laughs> Trying to civilize them, right? That's my, and that's it. That's all that I can fit in my brain. And I have come to see that one of my main tasks with them is to, as I civilize them, is to lovingly help them become aware now as they get older, out, out of baby phase, to help them become aware of a very cold, hard fact about the universe, namely that it doesn't revolve around them, right? And that's a very difficult thing to try and communicate. Um, and it takes years. It took each one of us a very long time to become aware of it if you've, in fact, become aware of that yourself. <laughs> and your friends and family will give you a very accurate read on how aware you are of that fact, right? So, but right, that's something we all have to go, go through. And that's, a, that's what parent, the huge part of what parenting is. Because when babies are babies, their needs dictate everything. You know what I'm saying? Literally, they'll die if you don't feed them and clothe them and wipe their bottom. And say, well, they smell bad if you don't wipe their bottoms, right? But so like their needs dictate everything. And in a sense, it's, it's not unhealthy that for a young family, it, that things revolve around a baby's needs. Like that's how, that's how needy they are. But I'm doing a great disservice to my children if we perpetuate that, right, at this age and as they get older. I'm actually not loving them well if I keep that illusion going that everything revolves around them. And so what that involves, and it's involved that even on our visit here, <laughs> is moments where I have to, I can't jump in and immediately respond to whatever need or crisis with the Lincoln Logs or Legos that they have. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's some moments and I hear, this happened the other week, and I hear Roman call, Daddy, Daddy. And so I, it's like Pavlov's dogs. Now <laughs> I'm trained and I just come running. And I look out and he's dangling from the treehouse in the backyard because he accidentally kicked the ladder out and so he was climbing down. So I'm really glad, you know, that I got involved and that I responded. But then there are other moments where he'll scream, you know, Daddy, Daddy. And I, you know, and I come and it's like the Lego man's head won't come off. And I'm like, dude, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Just twist it one more time, man, and it's gonna come off. You know what I'm saying? And so I have, there are these moments where I have to learn how to, when and how to meet their needs exactly how they want. And then there are other times where I have to discern when to stand back. And in both cases, I'm showing them love, aren't I? 
But in this case, I'm, I'm standing back because they need to learn how to cultivate right, the character and the skills to solve their problems through their own decision-making or to sit in, in the consequences of a dumb decision that they made. You know what I'm saying? It's this give and take. Um, and if you've ever been a parent, right, you know this. Uh, if you've ever been parented, you've been the cause of this right, for someone else. But there you go. And as I've been reflecting on that and also the story, the biblical story that we're going to uh, reflect on this morning. It's the same dynamic in our journey of following Jesus. Uh, many of us uh, b become followers of Jesus, or we've had moments that are significant in our spiritual journey, and precisely they're crisis moments. They're moments of real difficulty or hardship in our lives. And sometimes we pray, we cry out to God, and He answers our prayers. Or he comes, things happen, things resolve and improve in a way that we hoped for. And that's amazing when that happens. The challenge, of course, is that that actually doesn't happen very often, <laughs> right? And that God actually doesn't usually answer our prayers the way that we would prefer or the way that we would want. And it's very tempting to look at our difficult circumstances and to make conclusions about God's character based on our circumstances. And so things aren't working out. Things haven't been working out for like five years or whatever in, in your story. And you feel like God's not answering your prayers at all. And it's very tempting to make assumptions about God's parenting skills <laughs> in your life. Just like it would be tempting for my son to be like, sometimes my dad comes running, but sometimes he doesn't. What's up with that? He must be a bad parent, right? And so that's, that's the, the headspace that the story we're looking at puts us in, and it's very personal, and it's very profound. Um, we're going to look at the story of Gideon uh, for a bit today in the biblical book of Judges. And so I invite you to grab a Bible or turn one on, whichever of those you do, and uh, go with me to the book of Judges in the Old Testament, uh, and then chapter 6, chapter 6 of the book of Judges. So uh, y'all are doing this uh, uh, this collective reading through the Old Testament as a church community, and then the Sunday messages are, how you doing? Yes? No? Yes. How's it going? Great for 10 of you, apparently. <laughs> and that's okay. I get it. I get it. The Old Testament's really hard to read, isn't it? You don't have to pretend that it's not. It's hard. It's very hard. How many of your Friends or coworkers make it are trying to form a regular habit of reading an ancient text from the other side of the planet. <laughs> like nobody, none of your friends. That's who you know. What I, you know, that's very difficult, and it's a difficult story to understand and so on. I get that. So I hope that this whole experience and that the Bible Project videos can help you. But so uh, you're to the Book of Judges. You're going to start reading it like today or tom tomorrow is you know, as a community. What's happening here? So just a quick rundown, just a reminder of where we are in the story. Um, so key kind of figures. Remember Abraham? God made a promise that he's going to restore divine blessing to all of the nations through Abraham's family somehow. And uh, the family grows. They go down to Egypt. Uh, they become slave, immigrant slaves there in Egypt. And Moses, let my people go, 10 plagues, all of that. That was very exciting. Uh, then they left Egypt, and they parked at uh, the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai, and they got the Ten Commandments, and then 603 more. Remember trying to read that part? 
holy cow. So that was hard. And then uh, they leave Mount Sinai, they go through the wilderness. That's a bad road trip, road trip gone bad. And then um, they end up in the promised land, Joshua, and the tribes are all there. And here we are, now we're to the period of the judges. Now this is not the period where Israel had kings like David and Solomon. That comes after the book of Judges. And of course then the kings do royal failure and then Israel gets kicked out of the land. Um, into exile to, to Babylon. But we're not there yet either. We're in this period of the judges. Um, and I'm a Bible, confessed Bible nerd, so we'll go to the next slide, which is a map. Here's the, the, the lay of the land, so to speak, in the book of Judges. So there's nothing, all the tribes are there. Big family, it's a federation of tribes. And there's, there's no centralized anything. There's no centralized government or kings. It's just these tribes coexisting. The only thing that unifies them is their allegiance to the God of Israel who delivered the family out of slavery in Egypt so long ago. So now they're in the land, and essentially the book of Judges, think of like a hamster wheel. They're on a hamster wheel of unfaithfulness to the God who delivered them. And, and so the book of Judges tells the story of these multiple generations who they forget what God did for them, and they be, they're tempted to give their allegiance to other gods that are worshiped by their Canaanite neighbors. And when they do that, things go horribly for them and they end up having to sit in a mess of their own making. It's the storyline of the book of Judges. And so we're on like the third round of the hamster wheel as we start in uh, Judges chapter six. It's just, we're gonna start with the first sentence. So again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And if and you're reading through the book of Judges, this is a set phrase, which means, as you'll see it on other occasions, they start giving their allegiance to other gods of the Canaanites, like Baal or Asherah and so on. And so for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts and caves and strongholds, run for the hills, this kind of thing. Now, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Malachites, and other Eastern peoples would invade the country. They would camp on the land and ruin their crops all the way down south to Gaza. And they didn't spare a living thing, sheep, cattle, donkeys, they would come up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. So just imagine, imagine this scenario, right? You're in, right, all the tribes trying to coexist and begin farming communities and building a life here in the land. And then all of a sudden you have these invading arms like locusts. <laughs> they come and like you've been working on this field and you've got a grain harvest coming and then you have to run for the hills. And now all these soldiers and camels are munching on the, you know, the fruits of your labor. This kind of, it's terrible. It's terrible. It was impossible, this verse five, it was impossible to count all the soldiers and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Wouldn't you too? When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. And prophets... Uh, in the storyline of Israel, they're not fortune tellers, they're spokesmen and spokeswomen. There's male and female prophets that are gonna appear in the story. And they s speak on God's behalf to defend the covenant relationship that they made at Mount Sinai. And here's what the prophet says. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you guys up out of Egypt 
out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you. I gave you this land. And I told you, I'm the Lord your God. Don't worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you lived, but you haven't listened to me. And that's the end of the speech. Are you, so how are you feeling about life right now? If you're, right? You cry out to God, and God essentially says, listen, I've given you everything. I asked you for faithfulness, and you haven't been listening. And you're like, so, so where do we stand right now? <laughs> like, are we on good terms? Are we on, right? It just leads you to the precipice. The storyteller does, and then you're just like, so is God going to walk out? Is he done? Third time around the hamster wheel. Like, what's going to happen? You're just left hanging. This, per this is classic Old Testament storytelling style, right? This drama, international drama of nations at war playing out. And it's all because of Israel's unfaithfulness, and you haven't been listening. But the next day, there was this angel who came and sat down under this oak tree in Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah. And the tree belonged to this guy named Joash, the obvious riot, and he had a son named Gideon. And Gideon was threshing weed in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. You're like, what? So what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> We're like on the edge of a cliff wondering if like, you're right, this international drama, and then the story just screeches to a halt, and then it's like, you know, one time there was this guy who was the threshing weed, and then an angel sat under a tree, and you're like, what is, right? It's wonderful. This is nar classic narrative style. It, le it leads you in all this drama and conflict, and then, you know, there's this random guy and doing this, and it's great. And you're left to you're left to make the connection for yourself. Somehow, the story about this random guy who you've never met before is related to this international drama somehow. Uh, okay, and what's he doing? Sorry, one more relevant detail. What's he doing? He's threshing wheat where? In a wine press. Now you might read that. I don't know what you think when, when you read that. Okay, whatever, it's something ancient people do. <laughs> whatever, so no, it's not what ancient people do. This is the equivalent of saying like, and he was preparing a bowl of hot soup in a walk-in deep freezer or something, <laughs> right? And you're like, no, that's the opposite place you want to be to do that activity, you know what I'm saying? So here's just for uh, reference, Right here's the ancient Israelite wine press. They uh, excavated this in the ancient Israelite city in southern Israel. So there's these deep holes in the ground. It's a wine press. You fill it full of grapes, have a stomp fest, right? And then it all drains into that thing in the middle and then out into your bucket. And then you pull out all of the flesh or the pulp of the grapes. But that, he's not stomping grapes, is he? What's he doing? He's threshing wheat. And threshing wheat is something you're supposed to do on a threshing floor, which is a big open space. And as uh, you or your cattle are uh, rolling a millstone over it, it crushes the wheat seeds out of the kernel. And what's the kernel, the husk called? It's called chaff. And the reason you do it in an open space is the wind, or you get these threshing fans, and it blows the chaff away, and what's left is the good stuff. And you gather it up. So he's doing... He, this is survival mode, 
Why is he doing, why is he producing food in a wine press? Because of the Midianites. He has to be below ground and below the line of sight because the moment a soldier sees him, right, producing food, he's got to run for the hills and it'll get stolen. So the whole point is he's in a very desperate situation. How does Gideon and his people feel about their lives right now? Not good. So then the angel of the Lord, this is verse 12, appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? Where are all of the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us because he's given us into the hand of Midian. Now just pause, this is really important. Um, we're given a window into his psyche <laughs> and to how he thinks about God's role in his life. Um, when Gideon, are Gideon and his people in a desperate, dangerous set of circumstances? Yes. But look at, the, look at his logic here. So we're in a desperate set of circumstances. So when you say that the Lord is with me, what's his conclusion? No, he's not. He's abandoned us. And how do I know that he's abandoned us? Look at our lives. Our lives are falling apart. Do you see the logic there? The logic is, if God loves me, he will prevent bad things from happening to me. That's God's role, isn't it? To swoop in, answer all of our prayers the way I would prefer, and to solve all of my problems because my, my safety and well-being is obviously God's highest priority. Are you with me? And if you think, yeah, that's right, I would just challenge you to read the Bible and you'll discover that God also has other priorities that are actually way more important than those. Um, and those priorities usually have to do not with our circumstances, but with our character, our, our virtue and character being shaped in deep and profound ways, virtues of patience and hope and trust and humility, right, and self-forgetfulness. Like apparently these are God's priority. And so what it means for God to be with his people apparently doesn't mean he'll be like a helicopter parent swooping in every time they call daddy and he instantly solves their problems. Maybe that what it means for God to be with his people also means that there will be times of apparent absence where God will allow his people to sit in consequences of their own making or somebody else's own making. And it's not because he doesn't love them, just like, just like me not swooping in to solve the Lego head problem of my son. Doesn't mean I, doesn't, I don't love him, actually just the opposite. Me standing back to help him grow his own character is actually the way that I am with him. You, you with me here? And, it, and so what we're gonna watch is Gideon go from a baby mindset. God's role in my life is to meet my every need, to watch him grow up. And, and watch how God deals with Gideon. It's surprising and it's not what you'd expect. The Lord turned to him, this is verse 14, and said, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? 
my clan's the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. And the Lord's answer? I'm going to solve all of your problems the way you would prefer, Gideon. <laughs> the Lord's answer is, I'll be with you. You will strike down all the Midianites together. So Gideon replied, if I have found favor in your eyes, as if the angel and divine appearance to him isn't a sign enough, give me a sign. Do a magic trick for me. <laughs> that is really you talking to me. And you're like, well, really? Really? Don't go away. Uh, let me come back and I'm going to bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I don't have time for this. We have a people to save. We have it, right? What is the Lord's response? Okay. That's what you need right now, isn't it, Gideon? I'm, I'm right here. So Gideon prepared a young goat from an ephah of flour, and he made bread without yeast. It's like flat bread. And he put the meat in a basket and the, a broth in a pot. And he brought them out, and he offered them under that oak tree. And the angel of God said to him, why don't you take the meat and the bread and put them right there on the rock and then pour the broth over them. So we have the soggy bread and meat on a rock. What's, ha what's happening right now? Gideon did so. And then with the tip of his staff in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread and fire flared up from the rock and it consumed the meat and the bread and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Right? You're like, well, that's a really cool magic trick. Right? That's a cool, what an amazing sign, isn't it? And Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, and he said, oh, my gosh, sovereign Lord, I've seen the face of the angel of the Lord. And the Lord said, shalom, peace, it's okay. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to kill you. You're not going to die. Right? I love you. I'm committed to you. I gave you what you needed. You needed a sign, I'll give you a sign. It's fine. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, called it, the Lord is Shalom, peace. And to this day, it stands there in Ophrah of the obvious rites. So you, what you were expecting after the prophet, like, but you haven't listened to me, you're expecting the stern God of the Old Testament to be like, you, you know, petulant Israelites, and you know, they won't put up with you. But what do we see? We see God in this very tender moment where he, he calls and raises up a deliverer for his people, and, and he is afraid, deeply afraid. And so God discerns this. And the, what Gideon needs is kind of ridiculous, but whatever. God will do the magic trick if that's what his child needs. In the Are you with me here? It's very touching. The next story we have to skip for the sake of time. It's a short story. Where he, after this, he goes to his hometown. He sees all these altars to different gods of the Canaanites. He cuts them down. And it's a wordplay where he gets his name. Um, the word for hack, he gets an axe and he hacks them down. The word for hack is gada in Hebrew. And his name, gidon, gada gidon, his name means hacker. <laughs> Gideon means hacker, not computer hacker, an axe hacker. So uh, after that, let's tune back into the story, verse 33. Verse 33. Now all the Midianites, the Amalekites, the other eastern peoples, they joined forces, they crossed over the Jordan. And they camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. He blew a trumpet and he summons his army. He summons the obvious rites to follow him. 
He sent messengers throughout Manasseh calling them to arms. He sent messengers into Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they too went up to meet them. So he's, right? He's full of faith. He's had the magic trick. <laughs> and to build up his courage, God's spirit is empowering him. He's summoning this large army. We're going to go get those guys. Are you, you with me? That's the scene here. Then Gideon said to God, if you're going to save Israel by my hand, like you said you would, look, could I place this wolf fleece here on the threshing floor? And then in the morning, if there's only dew on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I'll know that you'll save Israel by my hand like you said you would. What's he asking for here? Daddy, daddy, <laughs> do another magic trick. Because I, I really, like the other one wasn't enough, fire from the rock and the soggy bread, right? He was, it's another magic trick. The irony, of course, is that this story about Gideon's fleece has in the history of Christianity become like this model of how, of your, how you should pray when you have a big decision to make in life. Are you with me? Familiar with this? And of course, that's the exact opposite of what the story is trying to tell you. The story is trying to critique Israel's disbelief. This is a sign of his disbelief. Don't do this. Don't behave like this. That's what the story is trying to sell, tell you. It's one of these ironies of how we misread the Bible. Anyway, so, and, and look what happens. Verse 38, what happened? This is what happened. Gideon got up early, and God did the magic trick again, a second one. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew. The bowl full of water was sitting there. Then Gideon said to God, please, don't, don't be angry with me. Can I just have one more request? Daddy, Daddy, can you just allow me one more test? He just says it straight up. I'm testing you. One more test with this fleece? But this time, let's do the opposite magic trick. Let's have this time the fleece be dry, but dew all over the ground. And that night, God did what? Okay. This is what you need. I'm right, I'm with you. That night God did so. The fleece was dry. The ground was covered with dew. Now, if, the, if you're watching a parent do this, you would be tempted to think at this moment, this is starting to get unhealthy, you know, <laughs> right? Every moment God just comes in and meets Gideon's needs and desires exactly the way he wants. But sometimes that's what a loving parent will do because they know and they can discern that's what they need. Okay, I'm right here. But then there may be other times when God is with his people in a way that he doesn't swoop in to the rescue. Chapter seven. Early in the morning, Jerubal, that is Gideon, he got that name from the story that we had to skip for the sake of time. All his men camped at the spring of Harod. Now the camp of Midian was to the north and the valley was near the, near the hill of Moreh. And the Lord said to Gideon, yeah, you've, you've got way too many men to deliver Midian into their hands. You know, in order that Israel may not boast against me and say that their own strength saved them, why don't you go make this announcement to all of the soldiers. Hey, anybody who's afraid, why don't you just turn around and go home? And so 22,000 men deserted the army. <laughs> 10,000 left. Now just stop. 
you're an army captain, and this is your morning. <laughs> How do you feel about your life right now? Um, so huge stressor just came into your life this morning, and who caused it? It's not just who allowed it, who caused it? Then the Lord said to Gideon, yeah, still too many. I'm going to take them down to the water, and I'm going to sift out the soldiers there. And if I say, this one goes with you, he'll go. And if I say, that one, no, he's not going to go, he won't go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told him. And again, for the sake of time, he says, those who plunge their heads into the water to drink, like a dog would down, those guys all have to go home. But those who kneel down at the water and, and cup the water in their hands and then are like this, those guys stay with you. And so uh, how many do this with the water and end up staying with Gideon out of the 10,000 remaining? So 300, 300, and the rest go home. And who's causing this? This is God's causing this. This is a very different parenting tactic from chapter six, you know what I'm saying? So apparently there are some moments where God will swoop in and do exactly what we would want. But then there are other moments where God will stand back and he will allow a set of circumstances to unfold that are extremely stressful, that are very difficult, very, very difficult circumstances. And so where Gideon goes, you guys are gonna read the story through this week, where he's gonna go, God's gonna say, okay, now you're gonna go fight with these 300 guys and your battle weapons are empty clay pots and little flashlights. <laughs> and then a handful of guys are gonna have trumpets. And those are your weapons. And then so he goes into the battle in the middle of the night and, well, you're gonna read the story, right? They overcome the bad guys in the most remarkable way you could possibly imagine. And the whole, out none of this is what Gideon planned. Even though things end well, they do not end at all the way Gideon would have wanted or would have desired or had planned. Are you with me here? So what are we supposed to take away from this? What's the story about? All through the story, we're asked to see that God is with his people. That's what this story is about. But what it means for God to be with his people apparently doesn't mean that he always keeps bad things from happening to them. Sometimes God will allow people to sit in messes of their own making, and that is how he is with that person. It's this paradox of God's absence actually becomes the means of his presence, because apparently God's absence forces us to, to take, put down deep roots of trust, of hope, of character, of patience, and apparently these kinds of cultivation <laughs> of character is a higher priority in God's economy than that our lives go pleasantly. And that is not an easy thing to hear. That's clearly what this story is about. And it's not just Gideon's story. It's a story that, that it's a theme that weaves all throughout the scriptures. And so let me, let me land, land the plane. I, I, I can't claim to, I don't claim to know your story. Um, a lot of people in the room, which means there's a lot of difficult situations in the room. There's a lot of people that you love and care about who are in really difficult situations. 
And what we're tempted to think is that God's abandoned his people. Because look at what's happening. And this kind of story is asking us to at least entertain the possibility that exactly the opposite is true. That God is with his people, but God's priorities in this season of our lives is different than what we would want or prefer, and that might actually be the best, the best news for us, even though it is also the most difficult news to receive. And we don't just read this story as ancient Israelites, we read this story in light of knowing the ultimate way that God came to be with his people in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who, not on, who did not stand back <laughs> from the suffering and hardship of his people. In fact, Jesus in, in entered so fully into the human condition and the pain and the tragedy and the consequences of our stupid decisions that he allowed it all to overwhelm and kill him on our behalf. And God's final statement to our world and its pain and its evil is the resurrection, which is the statement of God's love and creative life and power that is for us and with us. Amen? And so I don't know where this lands with you. That's above my pay grade. <laughs> it's not my job. Uh, this is Jesus' job. And so as we uh, conclude our time, as we sing and pray, I, just, I urge you to listen to what the Spirit uh, might be saying to you about your own life story uh, this morning. Let me close in a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for these the gift of these beautiful stories, so profound. Uh, we want to become people who are wise and who can discern how you're at work in our stories and in the lives of those we care about. But we want to believe that you are with us. It takes courage and hope to believe that uh, despite the difficult situations we find ourselves in. Uh, Jesus, we want to believe. Please help our unbelief. Uh, we know that you love us and are committed to us. Help us to live in light of that.